The 12 signs of the zodiac are divided into four groups of three, and each of those four groups is named after one of the elements. So in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore, let's have a look at the Greek origin myths behind the air signs, and that's Gemini, Libra and Aquarius. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I hope that you're well. I hope that January isn't treating you too badly. As I'm recording this, I'm currently looking out on snow that is rapidly disintegrating because it's now started raining. So thanks for that weather. I was quite enjoying the snow. But anyway, I am just going to jump straight into this week's episode because this is obviously part of our Origin Myths of the Zodiacs signs month as it were and obviously we are going to be looking at some constellations at the end of January since January has five Saturdays in it. I do want to do a quick shout out so thank you very much to Sharon and Rose for their lovely email that they sent me the other day. It really perked me up. I'd quite like doing shout outs, it's fun. I'll do a few more of them in future I think. But on to why you are here. Obviously, I'm not going into why we're looking at Greek origin myths because I did do that in the first episode, which was the fire signs a couple of weeks ago. But we are looking at the air signs this time and that's Gemini, Libra and Aquarius. So we are going to start off with Gemini. And Gemini is, as I say, the first of the air signs and represents the twins. And in Greek, they were known as Castor and Polydukes and their Latin names are Castor and Pollux. Obviously, Castor is spelled with a K in the Greek version. And it was Eratosthenes that renamed them as Castor and Pollux. And Hygienus actually proffered the view that they were not Castor and Pollux and they actually represented Apollo and Hercules, which would explain why one twin is shown holding a lyre, which would be Apollo, and the other one bears a club, which would be Hercules. I can't really find much else to support that particular reading of them, though. So we're just going to assume that it's Castor and Pollux. Now, their mother was Leda, Queen of Sparta, and Zeus took a fancy to her. You might be starting to notice a theme if you've listened to the previous two episodes. And he visited her as a swan. He actually seduced Leda. And then when she went back to the palace, she also slept with her husband, King Tindareus. She actually ended up giving four children after this, and in the most common version of the legend, Pollux and Helen were Zeus's children, while Castor and Clytemnestra were those of Tyndareus. And clearly this is biologically unlikely, but that is Greek mythology for you. Somehow Castor and Pollux were even said to look alike, despite their different fathers, and they did grow up to be close siblings, with Pollux becoming an excellent boxer, and Castor was a famous equestrian, also, should quickly point out that the Helen that is Pollux's sister is the Helen of Troy, so that's where she comes from in Greek mythology. Now, the twins allegedly joined Jason and the Argonauts in their quest to find the Golden Fleece, which we now know came from Ares the Ram from our Fire Signs episode. On the way to do this particular quest, Pollux ended up using his boxing prowess to fell Amicus, who was one of Poseidon's sons, and this allowed the Argonauts to safely leave Amicus's territory. 
There are quite a lot of legends that do talk about the way that tw- the twins seemed to protect sailors and they did ensure the safety of the Argonauts during the voyage and there was a particularly vicious storm at one point and two flames of St Elmo's fire actually played around the heads of the twins and at this point the storm subsided and then the ship could safely proceed and ever since then sailors have come to regard St Elmo's fire at sea as being a good omen. Two fires mean fair weather and one means storms. And either way, Castor and Pollux essentially became the patron saints of sailors. And the sea god Poseidon apparently gave them the power to save shipwrecked sailors, which does seem a little bit unusual given the fact that Pollux had splintered his son's skull, but this is Poseidon for you. He also gave them the white horses that the twins sometimes ride in Greek art. So they are a really interesting and quite powerful pair even when they're just simply having their exploits while they're alive. But unfortunately, their escapades were not to last. And in one version of the story, another pair of twins were also among the Argonauts. And for various reasons, the two pairs fell to blows. Some people say it was over women. Some of the stories say it was over cattle. And either way, Castor, being immortal, died in the fight. And Pollux then asked his father Zeus if they could actually share his immortality because he just couldn't bear to be parted from his brother. Now that's what one of the legends tells us. In another version of the story, the reason why they end up in the sky is because Zeus decides to add them to the heavens purely because they've been so kind and generous in life. And Eratosthenes actually gives no specific legend about their actions in life and instead says that Zeus put them in the sky as an exemplar of brotherly love. It is quite interesting though that you do have this sense of them being involved with Jason and the Argonauts and things like that but then somebody else going no 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 they were just really kind and generous. It it does kind of make you wonder a little bit. But ultimately where they become interesting it doesn't really matter what the story behind it is. It's the fact that obviously Pollux was the only one offered the honour of being put in the sky because he was the son of Zeus and obviously fair to the last Pollux basically said he would only accept the honour if he could share it with Castor. So it basically comes from the same route that it doesn't matter whether they got the reward for being kind and generous or because they got it for their escapades where they were quite brave and heroic quite frankly. So either way Pollux won't have it unless Castor can have it as well. Now this wasn't quite what the fates had in mind given Castor was mortal and Zeus got around their decree by saying that the twins needed to spend alternate days in the underworld and the heavens. So when one was immortal on earth, the other was in the underworld and then they sort of places the following day. And some people think that this might be why you can only see their constellation for six months a year, which might explain the division of time. And there are some people online who will say things like one star is brighter than the other and that's because you know, they're they're sharing their immortality and that's why it changes. It is quite interesting when you think that their sister was Helen of Troy and you might be like, well, why are they not mentioned in the Trojan War? Surely Castor and Pollux as skilled fighters would have been quite helpful. And apparently their death actually happened before Paris took their sister Helen to Troy, which is why they don't appear in that particular story. They are quite interesting though, and I do think a lot about their story is worth bearing in mind, regardless of which version that you take. So whether they're helping to save sailors and they're having all their daring do out at sea or they're just really kind and generous. Either way, I think it's the way that Pollux won't accept the honour without being able to share it with Castor, which is what really makes them such a noteworthy story in this particular series that we're looking at. So we're going to go from Gemini on to Libra. And Libra is quite notable because it's the only sign to refer to an inanimate object because if you think of all the others, they are either creatures or people or animals in some way. And Libra is a pair of scales. 
Now, the Babylonians called this constellation the balance of heaven in about 1000 BC, according to Ian Redpath, and the Romans were the ones who revived the idea that Libra refers to balance in the 1st century BC, and the Romans even believed that the moon was in Libra at Rome's foundation, which is obviously a really nice little bit of spin there to add to your foundation myth that your city was founded at a time of supreme balance. Ian Redpath points out that the association with balance actually came from the fact that the sun lay in Libra at the autumn equinox, but the equinox had moved into Virgo in 730 BC, so they weren't talking about the constellations, rather they were talking about the astrological signs, and we did discuss the difference between the two back in the fire signs episode and also the Asclepius episode last year. Either way, Libra was once linked with the claws of neighbouring Scorpius, which you would recognise as the scorpion. And it was during Julius Caesar's reign that the idea of Libra as scales eventually became established. He was often depicted actually holding the scales. And it's one of those things where if you want to make yourself be seen as like a fair and just leader, associating yourself with the scales of justice and balance and all things like that is a good way to go about it. But eventually this idea of scales and justice and so on was associated instead with Virgo, which makes sense because if you remember the Earth Signs episode last week, Virgo is identified with Astraea, the goddess of justice. However, because let's be honest, there's always a however where these origin myths are concerned, Ian Ridpath points out that Virgo doesn't really hold the scales aloft because the constellation actually lies at her feet. Just pointing that out. So there aren't many myths associated with Libra thanks to its links with Virgo, but that's not to say it's not an interesting sign. Because at one point it was known in Latin as Jugum, which actually means yoke, and William Tyler Olcott points out that this referenced a verse by Virgil, in which the poet noted that it was time to yoke your oxen at the time when Estrella's balance hung on high, which basically meant Libra was the ideal time to sow your winter grain. So you don't have all these amazing mythological stories behind it, but it was an incredibly useful sign instead. Robin Hard also notes that at one time there was a character who invented weights and measures, and because humans found them so useful, the gods then put them among the stars as an honour. And some therefore suggest that the sign should be called Stathmuchos, or bearer of the scales, even though no figure actually bears the scales among the constellations. So in a lot of ways, the scales themselves become important, not who's actually using them. So as I say, Libra is a bit of a funny one because it doesn't have all these huge things behind it like some of the other ones do, but it is still quite a a solid sign nonetheless. And we're going to move on to Aquarius, which I must admit, I always thought was a bit of a strange one to be an air sign because it's the water carrier. So I was always kind of like, eh, how's that one work? But it's just the way that the, the signs kind of cycle through. And William Tyler Alcott actually points out the fascination in this part of the sky for a great celestial sea, as he calls it. Because if you look at the part of the, the sky where Aquarius is, you've also got Pisces, you've got Capricorn, you've got the Southern Fish, Aquarius, and then you've got other constellations like dolphins and whales and other forms of waterborne animals. So therefore, it does actually make an ideal location for the water carrier. And even the Babylonians saw Aquarius as a male figure pouring water. Most legends do identify the water carrier as being Ganymede, the third son of King Tross, who was the founder of Troy. The myths agree that he was the most beautiful boy in the world, and in one version of the story, Ganymede was out one day looking after his father's sheep, but he'd caught Zeus's eye, so Zeus is back again. And this is where the stories do diverge slightly, but the end result is the same. Zeus either took the form of an eagle to snatch Ganymede away, or he actually just sent an eagle to do it for him. Either way, 
Ganymede ended up on Olympus and Zeus then gave King Tross either a pair of horses or a golden vine as compensation. So Zeus basically brings him to Olympus. There is actually another version in which Eos, goddess of the dawn, stole Ganymede while two rivals were fighting for him. But then before she could enjoy her triumph, Zeus then stole Ganymede for himself. So again, it's one of those things. There's different routes to get there, but the end result is much the same. So once on Olympus, Zeus then gave Ganymede eternal youth and immortality. And Ganymede essentially becomes a bit of a wine waiter, dishing out nectar from his bowl. And unsurprisingly, this then wound up Zeus's wife Hera, who, to be fair, spends most of the myths annoyed at somebody, usually Zeus. But Zeus and Ganymede do actually remain a couple for a while in the myths, and eventually Zeus then puts him in the zodiac as Aquarius. Now, due to Zeus's relationship with Ganymede, the myth did become really popular for its celebration of homosexuality. And Aaron J. Atma even notes that Ganymede is sometimes shown alongside the god of love Eros and the god of marital love Hymenaeus as the god of homosexual love. So it becomes this lovely part of different forms of showing love for another person. But because this is the Zodiac, it's not the only identification that Aquarius has. And there are a couple of other versions as well. And to be fair, these ones actually all equally make sense. So I'll leave it up to you to decide which one you prefer. Ian Ridpath explains that the constellation may have originally represented the god of the Nile in ancient Egypt, and Eratus referred to some accounts that suggested Aquarius was the demon of the Nile who regulated the water's flow. So again, that fits in really well with this idea of a celestial sea, but it also explains how other cultures then explained this particular constellation as well. Elsewhere, Germanicus Caesar thought it might represent Deucalion, son of Prometheus, and there is a story within the Greek myths of a great flood that swept away much of the world, yet Deucalion was one of the few to survive. So in this one, he's more or less pouring the water as a sign that he was a survivor of the great flood. Hyginus, on the other hand, thought that Aquarius might represent sea crops because wine hadn't been invented yet. So this early Athenian king would make water sacrifices to the gods. And that would certainly explain why Aquarius is pouring water rather than the nectar that he would do if he was Ganymede. Either way, it does seem a little bit thin as myths go, but a few people actually note that the identification of Aquarius as Ganymede does seem a little bit thin, and you kind of go from person pouring water to someone dishing out nectar, and it's not quite the same thing. But I will leave it up to you which one you think is more likely. So that is the air signs and people often associate the air signs of the zodiac with being good communicators. They are ideas people and they often look at things from an intellectual perspective. And also I should point out that none of these attributes come from the signs themselves but rather the associations of the element of air and the air signs actually link with the suit of swords in the tarot. And these air signs like the ones before them all mark a range of types of myths. So you've got Gemini representing the fair-minded and loyal twins, the patron saints of sailors. You've got Libra as a sign of supreme balance and justice. And Aquarius, the water carrier, is immortal, beloved and honoured by the gods. So if you are one of these air signs, I would love to know how you feel about the Greek origin myth that goes with it. Do you think it makes sense or are you a little bit disappointed or are you just quite happy to go along with it? Please, please do feel free to let me know. Next week, we are going to wrap up the signs of the Zodiac with the origin myths behind the water signs, and that's Cancer, Scorpio and Pisces. And at the end of January, we will be having a look at other origin myths behind like famous constellations that you will be able to see relatively easily. I am also going to be soon recording the Patreon exclusive episode, which this month is going to be on the folklore of owls. So December's was crows and ravens, and we are continuing the bird theme 
with owls because that was what one of my Patreon supporters requested. So if you are interested in all things avian and you are interested in getting access to those episodes, you can do so by becoming a patron at the £3.50 a month tier. And of course, you do then get access to all the previous episodes. And we've done things like Pluckley, the most haunted village in England. We've done Bawley Rectory, the most haunted building in England. We've done the Highgate Vampire and the Glasgow Vampire and a whole other lot of things besides. So you do get access to everything that's gone before as well. So I do hope that is something that you may be interested in. Other than that, though, that is it from me for this week, and I will see you back here next week to have a look at the water signs. So without any further ado, cheerio. Well, thank you for listening and thanks for visiting Fabulous Folklore. I hope you enjoyed your stay. If you did, why not consider subscribing in your podcast app of choice? If you enjoy the show, why not leave me a review and help other listeners to find it as well? And if you'd like bonus exclusive episodes of the podcast, then why not support me on Patreon? It does help me to keep the show going and it means that you get a little bit extra every month as well. And you can find all of the necessary links in the show notes below. So without any further ado, I will bid you adieu and I hope that you have a safe travels wherever you're going on to next.